Hey. hey. Sorry I'm late. I was just having some trouble with... Hold on. Um, that's my landlord. I just need to talk to him. Hey, excuse me. Peter? Peter, hi. Um, Amy Johnson. I live in apartment three. Oh, hi. I moved in last month. Um, have you received my voicemails? I left about 20. Uh, can you remind me what this is regarding? Yeah, um, when I signed my lease, you said there was some work that was going to be done. Right, that's still the plan. But, but that was supposed to be done before I moved in. Does your lease say that? No, but... Then there must have been a misunderstanding. But, the refrigerator doesn't work, the bathroom is leaking, and there's a broken window. My apartment's cold. If you wanted work done faster, you can hire someone yourself. Okay, um, I'll send you the invoice. <laughs> no, uh, you have to pay on your own dime. But that's not fair. If things aren't fixed, I'm not paying next month's rent. You know, if you don't uh, pay your rent, I will have you evicted. It'd be a shame to come home one day to find all your stuff's been tossed out in the street. Look, look uh, Erica? Amy! You seem like a nice girl. Uh, student, right? New to the area? This place is a palace compared to what you can find for the price around here. I've got applicants lined up at the door. So if you want to play games with your rent, you can find a new place to live. That's your uh, landlord, huh? Yeah. What a jerk. I feel so stupid that I rented this place. When I first moved in, it was filthy. The bathroom was disgusting, and I had to clean it all by myself. I already hired a plumber once to fix the shower. Guess what he said to me? No offense, miss, but why do you live here? Well, I guess I'd ask the same question. Why do you stay? I don't have money to move out. I've put all my savings into this place. First, last, and security. Like I'm ever gonna see that again. Well, if he's violating the lease, just get your money back and leave. It's not that easy. Uh, Amy, the system's on your side. Well, it doesn't feel that way. You heard him. I can be evicted. I don't think he can do that. A everyone says Massachusetts law favors the tenant. Well, that sounds great in theory, but how am I supposed to access the law? I don't have money to hire a lawyer, and he has all the power, and he has the keys to my apartment, and I'm almost positive that when I'm not home, Someone comes in and turns down the heat. Are you sure? Yeah. That's creepy. This is just a mess. I feel so trapped and I don't know what I can do. First, let's just take a deep breath. I'm sure things aren't as bad as they seem. They're not? I mean, he owns the whole building, right? If he was doing something illegal, someone else would have complained. Plus, like you said, I'm sure that taking him to court would be more trouble than it's worth. Can't you just hire a repairman? No, I don't have money for that. Then I guess you just have to ride out the lease. But that's ten more months. It'll go quick. Come on, let's go get some coffee. My treat. Maybe we can find you a refrigerator on Craigslist or something.
Uh, well, a few years back, a theologian by the name of Cornelius Plantinga Jr. wrote a book about the brokenness of the world, about sin, and he entitled it, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. Now, those words resonate with us, don't they? That they capture the condition of this world. Most of us, the drama that we just saw, we watch it unfold and, and we see uh, a, a young woman who has no cards and a landlord who has all the cards. And we say, that's not the way it's supposed to be. That, of course, these words don't only apply to a situation between a young woman in Boston and her landlord. It also applies to to the entire world, its systems, its people. And when we look close enough at ourselves, we know that it applies to our own hearts. It's not the way it's supposed to be. During the the season of Lent this year, we're making our way through the books of the minor prophets. And the minor prophets are not just saying that the world isn't the way it's supposed to be. They're saying the world is broken, broken. What prophets do is they shine bright lights into parts of our world that that illuminate long enough and close enough for us to see. Uh, Now, I am a soft lighting kind of a guy at home. Um, I drive my family nuts because when I come home and all the lights are blazing at home, I walk in and the first thing I do is I make my way to the different rooms, turn off the overheads, turn on the accent lighting, Uh, And the reality is, uh, soft lighting hides a multitude of sins, doesn't it? All of us homeowners and uh, homemakers uh, can resonate with that. You know, you turn the, the, the lights down soft, and you don't see the dust on the table, and you don't see the kids' stuff on the floor, and uh, you turn them down low enough, you don't see the streaks of fingers on the windows. Um, and I learned another trick. You put on sunglasses, and you go to the dishwasher... <laughs> The dishes all look clean, you know, at that point. But uh, the prophets, they aren't soft lighting kinds of people. They come in with this white hot spotlight and they show us where the problems are. They call them out. They force us to look at the things that are broken. And throughout this series, we've seen a number of the prophets make their way to show us these broken things. We began with Hosea, who shined a light on our unfaithfulness, showing us how we've broken our covenant with God and how we break our covenants with one another. And then in Micah, we find uh, he shines, lights on, uh, shines a light on our corruption, showing us the corruption of power, showing, showing us the corruption of our character, showing us the corruption uh, of even our compassion. And so here we are at, in the book of Amos today. And Amos shines the light and shows us injustice, injustice. Here are the opening words of this book. Amos chapter 1, verse 1. Amos was a shepherd from the town of Tekoa in Judah. He received his message and visions two years before the earthquake when Isaiah was the king of Judah and Jeroboam II, uh, the son of Jehoash, was the king of Israel. Now, just to situate ourselves here, Amos is a prophet. He's a prophet from during the time of the divided kingdom. The north and the south were split, and uh, he comes from Judah. He is a shepherd from Tekoa in Judah who makes his way to Israel and begins his prophetic ministry, preaching and writing 
and calling out the injustice of Israel. Now, during Amos' lifetime, Jeroboam II was the king of the northern tribe. And the northern tribe of Israel, during Jeroboam II's rule, had expanded its territory to the place of its heyday under King Solomon. And so Israel was experiencing vitality, economic and military strength. And it was going through a boom season when the wealthy were getting wealthy and uh, when the strength of the, of the kingdom was strong. Um, and uh, in their prosperity and in their wealth, with their comfort and leisure, in the midst of this economic strong season, um, there arose this rising injustice that caught the attention of God in Israel. And he caused him to speak a message through his prophet Amos. I want to take a look at that message for a few minutes. He begins, the book actually begins, um, with a message that was probably well-received in Israel from Amos. Amos begins his ministry and his preaching, um, preaching against all of the tribes, uh, actually all of the countries around Israel, and speaking words of condemnation. Uh, now, let's face it. We all love it when people make judgments against people who are not us, right? We love that. Um, we love when people speak negatively for people who aren't part of our tribe. We don't like it when they start speaking negatively about us. But we are good at point pointing out the problems of others. And as Amos began, that's exactly what he was doing. Here in America, our, our politically and culturally divided nation, we love those rants on the news feed that come across our, our social media that are against those people over there. Uh, we, we like news channels that we listen to because it reinforces our own view of the world and never calls us out, always calls them out. And especially when someone is an enemy in our eyes, the idea of God bringing judgment sounds really sweet. It's about time, God. Get them. And that's what Amos begins to do. He, he starts with Israel's neighbors to the northwest, Damascus. Let me give you a flavor of what it sounds like. This is what the Lord says. The people of Damascus have sinned again and again, and I will not let them go unpunished. They beat down my people in Gilead as grain is threshed with iron sledges. So I will send down fire on King Hazael's palace, and the fortresses of King Ben-Hadad will be destroyed. And you can hear the people of Israel saying, finally, finally that King Hazael will get his and that Ben Hadad, we've been waiting for this time, you know, like we don't recognize any of these names. Uh, it must have been like, uh, like Kim Jong-un. Like he's gonna get his finally. And then we say, yes, God, bring down the fire. Um, one pagan after another gets called out by, one, one pagan nation after another gets called out by, by Amos. He begins in Damascus. And then he goes and he turns his attention to, to Gaza and then to Tyre and then to Edom, and then to Ammon, and Moab. It's as if he's ringing the nation of Israel with a protective ring of judgment against their enemies. But Amos then, as his readers realize, he's not just drawing a circle around them to guard them. He's actually drawing a circle around them as a target. And guess who stands in the middle? The people of Israel are about to have Amos thrust his message into their very heart. 
He first uh, shoots a warning shot across the bow with Judah as he pronounces judgment against Judah, the southern kingdom. And then for the next eight chapters, he pronounces this scathing rebuke of Israel. It was directed right at them. So sermon after sermon, chapter after chapter, Amos was pronouncing judgment on Israel. And uh, it is hard reading. If you took me up last week on the the assignment for this week to read through all of Amos, um, you made your way through some some thick material, uh, some hard reading. It is not uh, Joel Olstein's light devotional reading that makes you feel good afterwards. It is heavy stuff. Some of the most uh, face-melting condemnation words from God in all of the scriptures. Uh, and, uh, and so kudos to, to those of you who made it through. There were two things primarily that, that throughout this book and throughout Amos' ministry that God was taking issue with when it came to the people of Israel. Two primary words of judgment that were spoken over them by Amos. And I want to make our way through both of them. First of all, his first word was a word of rebuke against Israel's indifference to injustice. Indifference to the injustices that were taking place in the community. Now, as I said, it was a time of strength and prosperity for Israel. And during this time, many of the privileged elite were becoming very wealthy off of the, 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 off of the economics of the kingdom. Uh, and they were living lives of ease and luxury. And uh, Amos actually talks about how they were building multiple homes, ivory-towered homes that they were living in, these mansions. But it wasn't their wealth that drew God's attention. It was their callousness. It was their callousness and indifference because their pursuit of luxury and pleasure was drowning out in their lives a concern for those who were struggling around them. The widows and the orphans, the poor, the disadvantaged, all of those who are on the underside of this system, on the underside of power, their lives were becoming increasingly unbearable. So we talk about the gap between the rich and the poor. Well, it was in full display in Israel. But it wasn't just the gap between the wealthy and the poor. It was these ingrained systems of injustice that fueled the wealth of the wealthy. Systems that were established that kept the up people up and the down people down. And Amos saw that, spoke on behalf of God. Here's a sampling of his message. This is what the Lord says. The people of Israel have sinned again and again, and I will not let them go unpunished. They sell honorable people for silver and poor people for a pair of sandals. They trample helpless people in the dust and shove the oppressed out of the way. And again, this, how you hate honest judges. You despise people who tell the truth. You trample the poor, stealing their grain through taxes and unfair rent. You oppress good people by taking bribes and deprive poor people of justice in the courts. And again, my people have forgotten how to do right, says the Lord. Their fortresses are filled with the wealth taken by theft and violence. Now, I'm sure that many people, when they heard Amos speaking these words, knew that he couldn't have been talking about me because I have never sold a person, poor or rich, for a piece of silver or a pair of shoes. 
I have never shoved anyone out of the way. Like, that's just not me. And, and it may have been so, but, but Amos says that we trample the poor by stealing their grain through unfair taxes and unfair rent. We take bribes and deprive people of justice in the court system by making it impossible for them to get a fair trial because they don't have the means to pay the system. Now, maybe it took a shepherd, a, a person on the underside of power from another country, from the southern part of the kingdom, from a lowly class to resonate with and identify with the message that he was bringing. Maybe it allowed Amos to see the injustice in the ways that the privileged and wealthy class couldn't have in Israel. But much of what was driving Amos's message to the people was this indifference to injustice. It was making God angry. A while back, I heard a message from Pastor Tim Keller, who is, uh, uh, who is the pastor at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. Uh, he planted a number of churches in New York, and one of one of the things he wanted to make sure was ingrained into the very DNA, into the, into the values of these churches, was the sense of the church doing good in the community, uh, finding ways to expand justice where the justice systems had broken down. And uh, similar to how we're, we've been thinking these last few months about Grace Chapel's role in the greater Boston area. And uh, he, he was talking about justice, and he said this, he said, our current understanding of justice in the United States is, is that justice is freeing individuals from the restrictions of the group. That when we give people individual rights and freedoms, that justice can happen. He said, but actually, biblical justice is very different. He said, biblical justice is the entwining of oneself into the fabric of the group. Instead of justice being about freedom, justice is actually taking responsibility, entwining oneself into the fabric of the group. It means that we look out at the fabric of society and we look for the places where, where, the, where the strings are beginning to fray. And we care about that. Not only do we care about it, but we begin to entwine ourselves in the midst of it. And Keller says that when churches begin to do that as, a congreg as congregations and as communities of faith, we begin to be good for the world in the ways that God intends us to be. Biblical scholar Bruce Waltke takes this idea of justice and helps explain the meanings of two Hebrew words, righteousness and wickedness, the righteous and the wicked. Walke looks at the uh, entirety of the breadth of the, the Old Testament and looks at the, the, uh, at, the, at the original Hebrew, and he says the very definition of righteous is people who are willing to disadvantage themselves in order to advantage others. And the wicked, on the other hand, are willing to disadvantage the community for the sake of themselves, for the advantage of themselves. And this is exactly what God saw happening in Israel. And when he saw it, it led him to reach down and shake the boots of a, of a young Amos, a shepherd, and began to swell in his heart this vision uh, of making things right and of bringing this message that burned in his chest to Israel. So Amos' first rebuke of the people is their indifference 
to this injustice around them. The second rebuke was a scathing critique of their fervent religious practice. So it seems that in all of their disregard for the plight of the oppressed, for all of their disregard and blindness to the systems that were keeping people down, uh, these folks were still fastidious, it seemed, in their religious practices. Uh, They not only made it to worship every once in a while, they were there every week. And uh, on Sundays when it snowed, uh, they wouldn't even sit at home and watch online. They would come in to the church, you know what I mean? Uh, Not making a comment. Um, but uh, they wouldn't miss a Sunday. They wouldn't miss a festival. They wouldn't miss an offering. They wouldn't miss a song. They would sing out loud. Uh, But you know what happens when God's people begins to combine these two things? Uh, An indifference to injustice combined with a fervent show of religiosity? Those two things make God crazy. And I don't mean God's must be crazy kind of crazy. I mean they make him angry. They raise an ire in him that begins to be let out. And so that's exactly what was happening. It shouldn't be so, Amos said. It cannot be so. God got hot, white, mad about it. Here are his words. He says, I hate all your show and pretense, the hypocrisy of your religious festivals and your solemn assemblies. assemblies. I will not accept your burnt offerings and grain offerings. I won't even notice all your choice peace offerings. Away with your noisy hymns of praise. I will not listen to the music of your harps. At their religious festivals, they lounge in clothing their debtors put up as security. Ouch. And in their house of their gods, they drank wine bought with unjust fines. Scathing rebuke. Now, what's interesting about this is that historians will tell you that this kind of message would have been unheard of in the ancient world. As a matter of fact, in ancient times, the gods were completely identified with the the success and the wealth and the power of a people. Um, In ancient times, powerful kingdoms uh, created religious structures and gods that would reinforce their own power. And so religious worship and the priesthood were instituted to uphold the structures of power in a day. Centers of worship were brought to the kingdom center. So people understood that kings and leaders and priests, they were on top because the gods must have been favoring them. And the people who were down here must have been down here because they had done something uh, to make the gods angry. Not so with Yahweh. The God of the scriptures is this radically different kind of God than every other God of the ancient world. Yahweh identified not with the people at the top and the people in power. Yahweh constantly demonstrated and identified with people at the bottom as well as people at the top. He saw people as people, human beings equally made in the image of him. And so the fullest expression of this God of the poor, it finds its expression uh, a few hundred years later when God looks down at the frayed fabric of our world and actually enters into it through his son Jesus, stepping out of the heights of his glory and entering into the world, not as a king, but as a peasant, Uh, not born in a palace, but born 
in a stable. And as he makes his way through the world, Jesus continually identifies himself, not with the wealthy, but with the poor, always making his way to the people in the margins. Jesus' teaching reiterated what we see here most poignantly in Matthew chapter 25 when he condemns those who fail to care for the least among us. And he commended those whose heart had gone out to those who were hurting. He said, you fed the hungry. You gave water to the thirsty. You invited in the stranger. You gave clothing to the naked. You visited those in prison. You cared for the sick. And when you did that, Jesus said, you did it to me. You see, acts of justice and expression of worship together in the one person of Jesus. It turns out that justice is a symptom of a right relationship with God. Justice is just an outflow, a symptom of a right relationship with God. But when the rich came to worship, they were thanking God for all the blessings that they'd received. And God looked at them and said, no, I didn't give you those. You took them from these people and you're hurting them in the process. I wonder if there are any points of resonance for us here today. My preaching professor, Dr. Haddon Robinson, uh, every once in a while would remind his uh, preaching students uh, that uh, people are coming to the church asking themselves, what's up with the Hittites, <laughs> you know? Like, what's going on with that world back then? People don't come to church wondering how it's going with the Hittites. And I believe in the same way here, uh, he, he's telling us, get practical, bring it into the moment. Uh, I don't believe people come to church wondering, what's up with Amos and the divided kingdom? We have questions about here. We have questions about now. We have questions about the systems in which we live and the communities in which we serve and the world that we look around and see things coming undone. So I'd like to draw the message to a close with a, a few questions that I think will be very relevant for each one of us, some diagnostic questions that I'd like you to consider, that we can consider together. The first question is simply this. Do you, do we find ourselves open to the prophetic voices around us? Do we find ourselves open to hear the prophetic voices around us? Is the posture of your life when it comes to issues of justice open or closed? Are you so certain of your view of the world that it's the right one that you have shut yourself off to the voices who might offer a rebuke or a correction, the voices that might point out something about your thinking or your living that might be out of whack? Are you willing to allow the pain of others to illuminate a blind spot in your own life and help you to see the connections between your outlook and your actions and the injustice that others may be experiencing? Are you open to the voice of the prophet around you? I have to say I'm so grateful to Pastor Dana Baker in, who, in her role here at Grace Chapel who sits as the pastor of social justice um, and grassroots ministries. Pastor Dana... Uh, on our behalf is a, is a part of many conversations like this that happen around the greater Boston area. She sits in uh, meetings and gatherings uh, listening to people who are in places where the fabric is, uh, is, is frayed. And she listens and she brings those conversations and those sensitivities to our staff culture. 
and to the culture of Grace Chapel. And she invites us to be a part of those conversations as well. And as a prophetic voice, she will often challenge our thinking, uh, pointing out the unspoken presuppositions that we have, bringing to light, sometimes painfully so, uh, our biases or our prejudices. Uh, I sit with her in some of the meetings at Grace, and there are times that, that she does that to me. And I feel, I feel initially my own spirit saying, yeah, but... And then I realize that I need to put that aside and listen and allow what she's bringing to the table to sink in and to change my perspective. So I might come to a place where I say, I hear what you're saying, and I understand more fully what's going on. We have many conversations around here as a diverse community, as a diverse congregation, and I encourage you to keep your hearts open when you enter into these conversations with others, when they talk about how something in their world isn't working and it might have implications on you. I'd suggest if you want some practice in this, then this evening there's a conversation that's happening in the greater Boston area. It's a conversation about mass incarceration that's hosted by a number of churches in the greater Boston area. Uh, Dominique Gilliard, who is the author of a recent InterVarsity book, will lead the discussion drawing from his own uh, experience and his book and his research. Um, he gives not only a, a, a thorough histor historical overview of how we got to where we are today um, with the, regarding mass incarceration, but but he also has some compelling things to say about how some of the church's theology and discipleship have left us ill-equipped as a community to address uh, these, uh, this crisis that's adversely affecting uh, our communities of color. And so he's going to be speaking tonight at Bethel AME Church in Jamaica Plain at 530. I encourage you to uh, go if you can make it and uh, allow yourself to go with an open heart. Are you open to the prophetic voices around you? The second question that's a diagnostic one for us tonight, today is are you willing to be disadvantaged for the sake of the community? Are you willing to allow yourself to be disadvantaged in order to advantage the community? Is there a part of the community or society around you that you look around and you see coming unraveled? Uh, is there a cause or a people that you're willing to be disadvantaged for in order to alleviate or lighten their suffering in order that justice might be experienced more fully? Is there a place that you've chosen to, to throw the strands of your life into for the sake of the community? I love the fact that this is the kind of church where I look around and I know your involvements and your investments, uh, your, the, the causes that you're committed to, the things that you are doing, and uh, we have many, many people who are committed to these very things around here. I look at the go wall outside in our lobby when we ask people what it is that God's calling them to for this season of life. Many of the things on that wall uh, reflect the challenges that our society faces, that they're willing to go and meet needs. The plight of the refugee populations fleeing uh, from conflict and, and persecution. Mass migrations. People are committed to this issue the great need for children or young people for good families. I know how many of our congregation have opened their homes to foster care or to be adoptive families. People are committed to global issues like child slavery or, or terrible living conditions for women without access to simple health care. 
So all of these things, on and on the list goes. And I know many of you are making sacrificial choices to care in these ways. But each one of us ought to be asking that question. Are there ways that I'm allowing myself to be disadvantaged for the advantage of the needs of those in the community? Is there some burden I'm bearing? And just a word, a post on a Facebook uh, is a step, but it isn't always a sacrifice. And I encourage you to bring yourself face-to-face with people. Connect relationally with real flesh and blood people. Invest in relationship. Talk to people who are in need. Sit with them. Hear their stories. And then understand what solutions might, might come as you begin to be sensitized to the needs around you. Third diagnostic question and the final one. Does your work for justice flow out of your worship of God? Does your work for justice and your worship worship of God find themselves linked? I actually think there there are people who have walked away from faith, who have walked away from God. There are atheists who have never wanted to step forward to discover God because they've never understood the strong connection between Yahweh, God, and the God of the Bible and, and the justice in the world. And I believe that there are, there are also people who call themselves believers who have never understood the, the deep connection between God and justice. And to the, to the first group, I would say, do you really know what you're saying no to? Because maybe you ought to reconsider when you understand who God is. And to the second group, I would say, do you really know what you've said yes to? Because if you do and come to understand the God that you are serving, you'll start to understand the implications in your life. The fact is our worship of God leads us to the work of justice, to the work of making things right. And our work for justice should be an outflow of our relationship with God. Justice is a symptom of relationship with God. And of course, never forget this. Each one of us comes as a person who is broken, who is frayed. We are a part of the fraying fabric of this world, and God, through Christ, threw himself into our mess. He literally disadvantaged himself to make whole all of what was wrong with the world. He gave up his glory. He gave up his very life for the sake of our broken lives. And as we follow Jesus, we follow the way of Jesus. That's why many people have discovered the the deepest parts of God when they encounter the deep brokenness of the world. Because Jesus meets us in those places. He's already there at work. And he experiences the depth and fracture of this world with us. And in it, we find his beating heart. So we find that it's not us who takes the lead in meeting the needs of those on the underside of things. God is there doing it all along. And isn't it we who have a solution? It's not we who have a solution to make things right. This is God's work. And as we sang, come Lord Jesus, come, we're reminded that Christ will come and make all things new. And between now and now, 
And then we join God in his work of making things right, of taking what's been frayed and mending it, of taking what's been broken, and by God's strength, be a part of restoration. And when we do that, we find ourselves worshiping the God of mercy. At the end of each of our message, messages during this series, uh, we've been offered a prayer of confession, acknowledging that none of us are in a place where we need to be on any of these things. And part of, part of embracing what has been shown to us to be wrong is acknowledging where we fall short. And so in just a moment, I'm going to give us an opportunity for a, word of, for a moment of silence to have some silent prayer, and then I'll lead us in a prayer of confession that we can pray together that'll be on the screens behind me. Let's pray. And then together. Sovereign Lord, you and you alone know our many offenses. You know how great are our sins. Like the Israelites of old, we have come complacent, finding comfort in the riches of this world. We have not defended the cause of the innocent, fed the hungry, nor sheltered the homeless. Forgive us, Lord. And help us to see with your eyes, hear with your ears, and have our hearts break with what breaks your heart. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Lord God, we thank you for these moments. We invite you, God, to speak to us through the words of the prophet. We ask that you would meet us when we look around and see places that are broken in this world. Help us to draw near to you and put you first and foremost in our hearts, because when we do that, we are best positioned and most ready to do for the world what the world needs. Heal the brokenness in us, forgive us of our sin, and allow us, God, to be unleashed, to be your agents in this world, agents of reconciliation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.